Hello, kia ora, and welcome to Purpose Fueled Performance with me, your host, Tim Jones, the Grow Good Guy. So there we are. Apparently, we are live. I'll just open up uh, LinkedIn on my other tab on the interwebs just to make sure that uh, we are truly LinkedIn living. But we should be. We'll presume that we are. Um, so um, hello, people of the interwebs. Um, if you're listening in live, if you're listening to uh, the recording, thank you uh, anyway. Um, and so PFP TV episode number eight. And this week, I have Monique Kelly with me. So yeah, Monique, who, who are you? What are you doing? Kia ora, everyone. Uh, so Monique Kelly um, grew up in Southland, actually, uh, and then I've sort of gone away and come back in the journey uh, or back towards the south of the South Island, and the journey has been interesting. So started my career in international law over in the UN um, with International Labour Organization, looking at decent work and uh, how that sort of social justice side of the employment sector, which has been really interesting, mm-hmm. and then came back to New Zealand around about seven years ago now, um, almost eight, and with my husband and my two children, and uh, was lucky enough to work remotely still for the UN, and still am um, a little bit. And we also set up a company called Revology, which is a natural fiber composite um, materials company, which is, has a strong focus on um, developing new materials, but also on um, responsible consumption and production practices, if I can put in a sustainable development goal into that one. Uh, nice. And on the back of that, we really wanted to have an impact on the community from a give back point of view. Uh, so we set up a charitable trust called WOW with some of the team members going, well, how can we use our skills and expertise to help our community to transition to a regenerative future? And so we set up WOW in 2018. And those sort of three hats now um, keep me very busy. Nice. Um, <clears throat> it seems to be a common theme amongst uh, good people doing amazing work that they're involved in lots of Lots of things, which I, I suppose perhaps suggests that there's lots of things that could be made better in the world. Or is it just, I don't know, is it part of the mindset of people? I, and I, I put myself probably in that boat as well. I'm currently working on sort of two or three big projects that could probably each have their own full-time commitment. Um, yeah, I think it's so interesting because this year I'd be really going back and um, trying to discover uh, a little bit about working more efficiently because people kept on telling me you're doing too many things you're going to fall over mm. and it was actually when I truly started to look and discover myself that I decided well and others have decided that I'm an activator which means that I right. like doing things if I if I'm not doing then that's when I get stressed so I'm a nice. very I'm, I'm, you're I'm an a, instigator I, yeah I, yes I need to actually be constantly having a project and doing things um, and that feeds me. Yep, I'm. I'm very much the same. I'm very much a starter, um, less so good as a finisher. Um, but I'm a really good starter and connector, and can kind of go. You need to talk with them because some cool stuff will happen. Like go at it, send me a postcard when you've done something amazing. Um, yeah, and I think that, that, that's just it's an interesting reflection. I think perhaps the scene that you and I are sort of both heavily involved in. We, we need starters because we don't know what it's going to look like when it is finished and 
those people will come in, you know, when it's time for them to come in. Um, I think that, but mm. no, sorry, you go. Um, I was just thinking, you know, innovation has been such part of my life in the past, uh, in particular since we've got back and founded Revology. And I think that the whole uh, design process and, and we are having to, you know, we've got this pathway, we're going towards this future that we want to build, but we don't quite know how to get there. And we need to innovate a lot and rethink and redesign and go back and forward and test and try. Um, and that's, I, I find that really <coughs> exciting. And that comes from a startup mentality as well. When you're a starter or a startup type of person, you that's what drives you is that innovation and constantly questioning, is this the way to do it? Is this not? Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a very interesting um, era that we live in that we can actually experiment yep. on a social front as well. Mm. And it's um, we've got our first comment in from a from a live listener, which is going to be it's an interesting one. We'll, we'll bring this one up in a second, but yeah, I guess it's, it's that balance of needing starters, initiators, people who um, see that things could be better, but at the same time not throwing out, I guess the, you know the baby with the bathwater, where there are maybe it's not the whole thing that needs to be changed. Particularly, potentially, it might just be you know the intent behind it or the way it's delivered. Um, mm -hmm. and I think it's, it's that real balance that's something that I've definitely struggled with in, initially when I first got into the sort of the do good scene it was kind of like tear it all down we need to start from scratch and you know build it all again but you know we have got to where we are and it's not been all bad um, but on that note here we go so the first question this is from John Benshop who I, I don't know John but his comment is the UN initiative is about creating communist states so with first-hand experience of of working for the UN and, and bringing some of their goals to life um yeah what, what what's the um oh, thoughts on that what, what, I'll tell you a really funny anecdote but uh one of the when I first went into the office and there was still that remnants of um you know you each country has a certain number of delegates and they're very particular about making sure that it's quite balanced but one of the officers was still, um, because you have a, in certain positions, you have a permanent post until you retire, was still very much uh, put there by the KGB and will stay there mm. until he retires completely. So it was quite a, that's a funny incident. But, you know, I think when the UN actually really got up and running, it was post-World War One was the League of Nations. Mm. And the whole foundation behind that was, and this is where the International Labour Organization came about, was around establishing a social floor for employment because there was massive um, human cost to how we were, how that economic system was actually running and mm. the amount of child labor, um, toxic substances that were being used, the recognition that when you are um, working, you need to have a holiday. So the, some of those first, uh, that social floor, and they recognized too that in order for us to um, operate as a global you know, community, we actually needed to have a, a really set form of rules around how we um, treated our employees. And there mm. are differences, there's definitely differences between each country, but it was that need to actually look at it from uh, we need to protect uh, people in that economic sphere. And then the UN itself, um, when it was set up, it was again post another crisis, and this time the huge conflict with World War Two, and from the need to um, protect our economic rights and that economic ecosystem, we suddenly mm. went after that huge, massive upheaval going 
from a human perspective, we need to protect human rights. And they were the next step up in a, a global consensus around what we needed to protect. And I find it really interesting that now we're sort of stepping up to that next circle, which is that, you know, when you look at sustainability, that's very much at the outside of it and what permeates everything is in to the mm. understanding around um, environmental rights and their intrinsic, you know, the intrinsic right of the vi environment to be protected and preserved and regenerated. So um, an interesting angle. Thank you, um, John. I would, um, I think the, there is definitely political elements within the US, <coughs> but the great thing about this is that there are diverse political elements and they each keep each other in check. Nice. There you go. <laughs> um, so, I mean, how did you how did you get into, I mean, growing up in uh, Southland, whereabouts in Southland for the, for the Kiwis that tune in? In Invercargill. In Invergiggle itself. Invergiggle, I mean, yes. Invergiggle to the UN. I, I mean, no offence to Invergiggle, uh, Invercargill, but I can't imagine you were the 10th of the Invercargillites to go to the UN. You, you were potentially one of the first. So how did that come about? I, I actually don't think I was. I think that Invercargill was an incredible place to grow up in because we it was a small enough uh, community to have all of the opportunities that we could have. The education, the schools down there are, are fantastic. And I was provided with so many opportunities to um, go on exchanges, to attend different things. So that sort of built up my... Um, and it's a really quite a egalitarian, like I think I came out of it knowing that I could relate to anyone, I could talk to anyone, I could see um, social justice in a really tangible way was sort of my, my focus when I went to law school was really around, uh, or I became a lawyer because of social justice. And I think that my uh, role of advocacy really appealed to me uh, and not all spheres of law fit within that vision. Um, but mm. definitely that international realm did. So it was a it was a really clear path actually. And the yeah. UN actually getting into the ILO was um, I prompted luck a little bit by rocking up and saying I'll work for you for free as an intern for a couple of months, um, and because I really wanted to be uh, part of that ecosystem, I guess for a bit mm. and. Um, managed to actually get employed afterwards. So, yeah. Was I'd, I'd hardly call that luck. That's you. That's completely creating your own opportunity by putting yourself out there and yeah. with some intent. And, I th and there's some great correlations between um, – I teach this in a couple of my uh, trainings, on around, one on positive mindset and one sort of around sales mindset is there's a guy, Professor Richard Wiseman, who's done – he's a professor of luck. And he did this study that people who are generally more optimistic and, and open to opportunity, oddly enough, consider themselves luckier, which means they then tend to either genuinely find more opportunities or they're just more open to them. Whereas if you consider yourself to be unlucky, if, you, if you'd considered yourself to be not so lucky, you would have gone, well, there's no point me asking them to volunteer because they'll probably just say no because they probably have someone already in mind. So for me, I think it's a really key. I think if you're... A, if you're that activator, instigator type person, I think you have that in bucket loads because it's like, well, what's the worst that can happen? I'll send them an email. Who knows? And exactly. cool stuff happened. You end up working in the US. So were you in New York working ultimately? No, in Geneva. Geneva, sorry. Yeah. 
Not, well, she's not, not, not too shabby. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's interesting because there's a, there's a huge amount of, uh, you know, within the, even just in Geneva, there's all the different agencies that we were around. So the World mm. Health Organization, yep. I looked at them through my window. Um, you had uh, um, Red Cross, which was just down the road, UNHCR. Um, the World Trade Organization was not far away. So you sort of, you know, you went on your walk at lunchtime to get a bit of air mm. and you were suddenly in this very international uh, realm and with people doing really interesting things. So it was, um, but it was a great experience. Nice. And what, what sort of work were you doing for the UN over um, there? So my first job, and this is, I think, where I really got um i've got the most incredible opportunity and again that's about um pushing those doors open uh, but i got given uh 19 conventions and 21 recommendations on occupational safety and health to distill because we were looking at that point about um how to have a better system of management for occupational safety and health at the international level and yep. they said, this is just crazy because we're siloing out. You know, there was old treaties from back in 1919 about phosphorus or lead or right. um, the employment of women at nighttime, which we'd sort of gone beyond. Yep. Um, I think that having a gender lens on particular legislation was kind of outdated in the 60s, yep. let alone the early 2000s yeah yeah um, with, with their phrases about give you know sub subjects of women may be getting the vote one day we will consider them yeah, be, to be crazy. employees <laughs> it was honestly crazy it was a grouping usually of women and children together right so there was a convention on the work of women and children um and you were mm. going like yes okay so intellectually i think we little pat on the head right. come on come on women and children yeah yeah exactly paternalistic turn at victorian <laughs> Come along, little um, ladies and scamps. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You can just imagine the hats and the gloves yeah. and yeah, <laughs> the cane, exactly. and a monocle. Yeah. Um, um, but I think that gave me that experience of having to go through all of those uh, treaties and all of them and distill it down into something. Gave me a really good overview too on a whole systems approach to a topic. Mm. Uh, so uh, out of that, we engaged with the different members. So in the ILO, it's very different because we have um, employers, workers and governments. It's a tripartite system. So each of them have their uh, an equal say within these in actually developing treaties. So it's a quite a unique organization. And it was one of the first actually established. So it was established in 1919 mm. under the Treaty of Versailles. Um, so once... I had that experience under my belt. We did a very similar thing on migrant labor and looking at that through a systems lens, a big picture and saying, well, where are we at at the moment? <clears throat> where have we been? And where should we go forward um, on that on that big scale? And I've sort of, I, th I think that that background has allowed me to come back and look at it on a, uh, on a much smaller scale, but mm. in a really relevant manner looking at yep. systems within um, communities, which is... Yep, and what that sort of global, global mm. trend is. Um, so, I mean, was that, do you think that was a path that you were kind of destined to go on or was there like a key influencer, like a parent or school teacher or, or someone in the community who, I mean, because even, I mean, you, you and I are about the same age. Um, for me, that, that definitely felt like there was no influence in, you know, I, I came to this kind of purpose piece 
well 2013 it was like when i first started thinking about wow there's like there's things that we could change in the world but you're, you're kind of thinking of that as a, as a school you know school-aged human yeah was it do you think that was kind of innate to you or, or was there a, some some kind of external input that made you go hey actually like i, I mean because you could have just gone down corporate law and you know be on that path be a high-paying lawyer and and just you know suing people or whatever um but you clearly chose a, a different path so yeah what what was that um i would have done finance and law if i was doing that and that would have been a really good income um no i uh, i think i always had uh, a very strong sense of fairness um, mm. things had to be fair and just and when um i remember sixth form actually and this was kind of a a, a real switch on for me and um the massacre in Cambodia, and I don't know if you remember the Killing Fields, yep. there was a movie. It was just horrendous. And mm. we had this sixth form English project at the time. Um, it was part of a major part of the internal assessment process. It was a year-long research project into a particular topic, and I chose the Killing Fields. And I did a lot of research into the background and what happened from a political level, but also bringing it to a narrative um, by taking the voice of uh, someone who was had gone through it um mm. and it was a, a sort of looking through a child's perspective of it and my teacher um i i didn't get the marks that i wanted uh, and one of the reasons why my teacher had explained and written down why she had taken away marks was because that she didn't find the topic relevant to me and wow. i was <laughs> like oh Obviously, we need to sit down and have a talk. <laughs> yeah, you clearly don't know me very well because I've just researched this for a year. <laughs> I, think, I think that that is coming from uh, um, the perspective of a teacher who has students and probably had, I don't know if she'd been uh, confronted with someone who was coming to her with such a subject and it is a confronting mm. subject yep. and with such passion and probably the, um, I think in New Zealand at that time, especially when, well, uh, having that clear this is what i want to do um mm. was not perhaps um that well known yep. but i i do I, I sort of almost feel there were two moments in my life where i really started to take blinkers off young very young you know at that young age where social justice was really important and i think that my mother had a really strong role to play in that because she was mm. very much she was a social worker in Invercargill and um, she has a very strong sense of fairness and justice. So I think I probably, that her influence would yep. have been strong there. Um, and then it wasn't, so my focus was really on social justice. And I looked at it from a perspective of um, making sure things were fair for people. And it wasn't until I um, started to look at my very narrow role in sustainable development and mine was focused on decent work and mm. that employment sphere and i didn't really um think that uh, or of my place within that whole sustainable development area until i it was 2018 beginning of 2018 and there was a click with myself and anna craig who's a, a dear friend and she was working we were working together at the time and we'd gone to see a film and it was Jeremy Rifkin's Third Industrial Revolution. And it suddenly just yep. switched going. I, I'd sort of pushed back all thoughts of um, the 
climate action and because it was I think it was too scary and I just didn't want to yep. go there and I knew as soon as I started to look into things in more detail I would have to get involved <laughs> and I would Lift really want, I was I, and I was I was really it, it terrified me actually it really did so I think subconsciously I'd pushed it out of the way and this mm. gave me um, a different view on it saying actually this is an opportunity to really make that next step up in the evolution of us as a species really yep if we get it right. nice 100 percent. i totally agree um yeah it's interesting because i think I'd, I'd probably generally err towards more environmental causes than social um i wonder i wonder if that was also maybe like growing up in idyllic invercargill southland you know beautiful outdoors on your doorstep queenstown wanaka central otago okay. What, what what environmental crisis? I mean, I, I guess other than sort of TY smelter belching stuff out down the road, um, maybe perhaps the environmental thing just wasn't wasn't so much on your radar locally because theoretical theoretical clean green New Zealand. It was, and I think too when I was in Geneva um, working in the Alps, and a lot of people say, "Oh, don't you miss it?" And I really don't because there are times within uh, the year, in particular in winter, where we lived on one side of a mountain, and I looked over to the mountain, which is probably about thirty k away. So when it's mm. a mountain, it's a huge thing um, opposite yep. you. You couldn't see it. You couldn't see it because of the pollution in the air. Wow! And there's a constant haze over mm. um, Europe in general. Uh, and you know, you look even look going down into you. You sort of fly down. I remember flying into LA as a 15 year old and I couldn't believe the sort of that layer of pollution that you were actually flying down into. Uh, and being on, um, I think, I think that was sort of the first indication when I had a son and he was very asthmatic um, and we couldn't have, uh, he, he was constantly sick up until the time we came to New Zealand and to Wanaka and then he's never had a crisis again. Oh, well. So the, the and you health think, impact on people is massive, massive. Yeah, and but you think Geneva would be way cleaner than anywhere. You just have to, I've been to Switzerland a few times, but I guess never for long enough to to see that. But again, it's 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 interesting, sort of the marketing on a country level. It's like you'd think because he's, I mean, I've been to Davos a few times, obviously not for the big international grand Pooh bar conference but I've been, I've been to the ski resort there and it used to be it was a tuberculosis um center where people who had tuberculosis were sent because of the clean mountain air and they they have the um what do they call like the krankenhaus or whatever uh, it was called where they'd have windows open on both sides and the clean mountain air would be so maybe, maybe they didn't cure them they just <laughs> gave they them something else well, you would have to go up and you do need to go up. So to get him um, to just alleviate his asthma, we would go up to 2,000 metres plus just to get out of the smog. Uh, and you really had to go up quite a long way to do it. But there was another one that um, that also, uh, just as we were leaving in 2014, and it really, this has slammed home to me how real climate change is. So we lived on this mountain and it was... Um, you can see it, it was actually one of the spots on the Tour de France two right. years ago uh, that they went over. And it's a forest um, and mm -hmm. totally forested, just close to Aix-les-Bains. And um, because of climate change, and it's, there was this bug that had come and it had migrated um, from the south and it had destroyed every single uh, 
buis as a type of um, like a French box hedge, that right. type of plant, covered our mountain along with another taller tree. Um, this insect went and ate the entire mountain. I went wow. up and I drove up and their webs covered the road. Mm. I just cried as I went up because it had killed that plant. I don't know when it will come back. And that has now, um, because of the heat waves coming through, and I had to live through a few of them, when it's, you know, 40 plus degrees in summer mm. there, how long is it going to take until that, those bushes that once sort of protected and kept that earth very moist um, until mm. they actually go up in flames? It's just tinder now. Mm. It's really, yeah, that, that, that was our home. Really we lived on that mountain, mm. so we would have been gone if it had. Yeah, so that so it makes maybe it really real. It brought home that environmental side of it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, the more, you know, I'm, cert I'm, I'm certainly not an environmental expert uh, to the depth that a lot of people are, but it does seem that soil erosion um, and soil health is something that, I mean, most people just aren't aware of, but the, I think I've, I've heard um, somewhere on the interweb, so it needs to be fact-checked, but I believe the stat is that it's like the US has got 60 more harvests um, in terms of like the corn and the grain that they harvest before the soil is just has no nutrients left and, and you kind of go that's that's not many um so it's you know within potentially decades that the soil has just been ripped of its nutrients and you kind of go well currently you know that that uh, industry is feeding a large amount of the u.s population but also its beef and dairy industry so if that collapses you know the whole economy tanks so there's a really cool i can't remember if i've mentioned this guy's um blog on here before but it's, he's called dr tim morgan and his uh, pod, uh podcast his uh blog is called surplus energy economics and i'll put a link to it shortly mm. and what he talks about as, as the key thing that we all need to get our heads around is 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 not the economy because the economy is just basically a made-up concept of um shared value being described or, or attributed to money you know, so we, we have a, a $10 note. We both agree it's worth $10. There's a value exchange. But what he's saying is um, it's it's not the money in the economy. It's the amount of energy it takes to run the economy for the economy to run. So he calls it the energy cost of energy extraction. And what he's saying is, you know, we're, we're the money is, is all just smoke and mirrors. Like you can just print money out of nowhere like that. That's easy. But when you look at the energy that we need to run the system, all of a sudden the economy actually doesn't stack up. And then you, so then you sort of, you layer that on top of environmental degradation at a, at a level of the soil, which most people just don't really think or care about. Yeah. It's, well, we should just stop now really, shouldn't we? Uh, do, you, do you know what I think is really exciting? Cause I think that the 1930s saw that huge dust bowl coming through in the U S but yep. it's coming back to New Zealand agriculture and, um, one of my so back and this is why we live in Invercargill um, my, on my mother's side they were some of the first dairy farmers in Edendale which is um, where um, sort of that dairy industry started to, to really bloom but there was um, an element in the soil that was missing called selenium which meant that the health of the animals started to um, deteriorate because they would uh, lambs who don't have enough they lose their legs and they sort of look like they are um, tetraplegic really or paraplegic um, so they had decided that they had to have an input in there to improve the soil and I, I love the concept of soil as a metaphor for or that agricultural um, mm. 
uh, wording around our economy because the way that I see it is, um, and if anybody wants to read this good book, because I'm going to go off and do a spin about fungus now and mushrooms. Oh, yes, yes. Um, What's the guy called? There's a book called The Hidden Life of Trees. And there's also The Mother Tree. And The Mother Tree was written by um, Susan Samad. And she is a Canadian scientist who's working in forest and has actually recorded in data, this is scientifically proved, that trees communicate through fungus and the importance of soil in communication. Um, And if we look at it from a human perspective, even for that, from that economic perspective, if we take the soil as sort of we've got the tangibles, which are our infrastructure that we need to make the economy run really well. So energy resilience, digital, affordable housing, we need to have um, quality education, we need to have all these things that in the soil as solid elements, but we also need that um, intangible. So that's our fungus and that's our relationships and connection with each other for it to really run. Um, and But the whole objective of that soil is to help and nourish our community and have it to thrive. Mm. So then you look at capital in a very different way is, you know, capital is fertilizer and fertilizer that goes onto the soil to help us to grow what that um, economy looks like. So if we take in a really good regenerative farming system, uh, they've got a lot of diversity in there, a lot of different crops. And the more diversity you've got in there, the more resilience you have to feed and nourish your community. Um, And then we've got to look at also from a perspective of making sure that some of the produce that we are producing needs to be exported to be able to get us in goods and services and products that we don't have available on our part of the farm or our part of the environment. Um, But we also need to make sure that the priority is going to help to nourish and look after our community first and foremost. And so going Mm. away from an extractive economy to a more regenerative one. And I think that those learnings that we're um, primary sector actually doing a good job at fronting up and saying, okay, we actually need to get some um, to flip here. Yep. Um, they, they, it's a really hard one, but every sector is going to have to do it. So they're yeah, actually 100%. The language, yep. I think, is really good because we can understand and um, mm. everyone can relate what... to a field in New Zealand. Yep. And that's sort of yeah, that concept of sort of biomimicry at that systemic level. Um, there's another. Have you come across Paul Stamets? Um, he's done a couple of good. He's like a real. He's the big mushroom guy in the US, and he's done at least one, if not more, uh, podcast episodes with Joe Rogan. And he's big into the research of mushrooms. Uh, exactly what you said. That kind of the fact that the fungi in general are hyperconnected, and that's the pathways for you know sort of. Um, that communication structure within within nature but also the the health benefits the spiritual connection to higher planes of consciousness that can be achieved through digestion of mushrooms and other health benefits of them yeah there's some just on that there's a there's a whole section of of, uh, commentary um but i guess this probably segues quite nicely into you know the revology stuff that you're doing and and bringing um these concepts of uh, and i guess also just to comment yeah that that regeneration and, and i think there's, there's two really good examples that i can see in the minute one is the new zealand merino company who are making some really really big strides towards wanting to become a, a wholly regenerative organization um and sinlay as well who you know they're not there yet but they their long-term sustainability plan is, is that they become a regenerative company and i think you're right it's kind of i think there's gonna be some really big 
big turnarounds in that primary sector because I think they're all they're, they're now clearly realizing from the research that we're running out of runway uh, in terms of our soil and, and natural sort of structures that once they're gone we ain't getting them back so quickly and it's something that you know I talk about in a lot of my work is if 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 your business is even slightly extractive or if you as a human are even slightly extractive the net endpoint is extraction which leads to destruction so we we have to be thinking in terms of that regenerative um thing I, I guess it's like i mean i haven't been scuba diving for ages but it's that whole you know when you go scuba diving take only pictures leave only bubbles and it's that kind of mindset we need business to be and, and individuals to be thinking about and and i guess you're a really great example of how you've you know you're not just i think there's a lot of people who talk about we need to do more good um but you're one of the people who's actually like okay i'm, I'm actually gonna put my sort of money literally where my money where my mouth is and start a business all around better design principles and yeah. So, so how did how did that come about? So, you were working working for the UN in Geneva, I presume, that's where you met your um, husband, who is French, or is he Swiss French? I can't remember. He's French. He's French French. French. Proper he's, French. He's French. French. <laughs> he's definitely very French. He, uh, yeah, he's very French. Um, love the French. Uh, I, I do so too. I'm born on my birthday's Bastille Day. I'm I love oh. France. We used, used to go to France for a lot of school holidays. My parents hate France because they ended up having some bad business deals with a couple of French people. But I'm like, I had great times, jambon and frites, um, you know, good weather. <laughs> it's like, and and they have a big party on my birthday. What's not to like about France? I love the French <laughs> attitude as well. I really do. I, I do as well. I just so kind of like boff. No. Yes, yeah, like, it can be so okay. It. It's almost like a pig in the mud because they love, love, love to complain. So, but they love it to the point of where it's actually not complaining anymore. It's yeah. just <laughs> ends so up in philosophy. Good. Yeah, <laughs> it so does. It so does. Yeah. They no, I would say that they're very critical thinkers. There's a very positive way of saying, um, <laughs> and they will always find the exceptions to the rule. Yeah. Um, but so that was, uh, Revology began um, with my husband coming over here and his skills are in uh, composite fibers. And he really, um, he really wanted to set up a business that was based on innovative um, natural fiber composites. So looking at how we can replace um, natural fibers to in products that we would usually use um, carbon fiber or glass fiber. Yep. Um, and it has, um so we were really lucky in that he was able to sell off uh he's a startup um serial startupper as well uh and we were able to sort of finance a lot of the r d into um pushing and advancing the uh technical materials because going into the future um you know there are taking that energy model there we still need to be able to create energy so how can we create it with mm -hmm. less of footprint uh, the emissions profile for natural fiber composites is much less than um, for the other composites. So there's a real um, there's a real niche, or not a, just a niche, but there's a huge potential to begin mm. to use natural fibers over and bioresins over um, sort of more those based on fossil fuel anyway. Yeah. So the the R and D side of things that would be more Alex and he would be the one to talk to more about that. Yeah, yeah, um, that high level. So how does anything get finished in your house? You have got two sort of startup agitator. Like, <laughs> did you do you, you even manage to finish cooking a meal together? It's like no, let's just test stuff and try stuff. <laughs> I think that one of the things about both um, Alex and I is that we are extremely good at um, we're really stubborn. 
We are really, right. really, really stubborn. So um, we kind of, we're, I would say, pig-headed to the point of just when we've got a project, we gnaw at it like a bone until it's really, really done. Um, yeah. So that would be another one of our, I don't know if it's a talent or a weight. <laughs> Depends who you're asking. <laughs> I, think, I think that we, we, we truly believe that this is a, a great idea and um, we're lucky to have the children. We've got two kids who are at an age where we can um, put more time into this and we get them yep. involved as well. Our son is a budding designer, so he's helping with the design nice. of the bike project at age 14 doing um, wow. CAD designs and stuff. So, um, but that was, so there's the research and development into the fiber or the natural fiber, which we call the green lab. Um, and then there's the second part is you can't have innovation without actually putting it into application. So when you're innovating and researching, you actually need to have a, a real tangible outcome of that. And you need yep. to think about how best to use that product. So it's starting first uh, from a circular design model. It's for what type of materials do we want to put into the system? Um, because we know eventually, you know, they, they either need to be able to be recycled again and again and again, or they need to be um, yep. able to go back into the ground without causing harm. Um, so that whole philosophy around the design then came into it and what products make sense. Um, our first object in that line was um, for this project was a chair because a chair is something that you hand down through generations. So if you get it right, it's actually a, nice. the lifetime of it. Mm. Um, it uh, You will always have a carbon footprint for a, a product. So how can you lessen that carbon footprint by making it um, last a long time, be easily repaired, and um, and then looking at also that product stewardship. So we've designed it so that we will take back and we can put back uh, the materials back into our system. Where it's much more difficult when you're innovating with new materials is it doesn't fit within a classic. You can't mm. just take it down to your local waste yep. uh, recycler. Um, so that was really challenging for us thinking about, well, how can we overcome that and, and stand behind um our ethos, um, yep. basically. Um, and then the third pillar was uh, uh, the connecting with like-minded people. And that was the store that we opened six weeks prior to the first lockdown last year. <laughs> Winning! <laughs> Yay! Yeah. Um, and that was, that was just, uh, that was a great year. Um, yeah. It was actually a great year. There were huge opportunities that came out of that one. So I will nice. say that it wasn't the year that we expected, but it was a good one. But on balance, um, turned out yeah. right. Yeah. And <coughs> that is the, the sole focus of that store is actually about um, mainstreaming sustainability. So it flavors everything that we have in the store. Um, we have a really clear matrix about what type of who the designers are who are coming in. Um, it's obviously our products, but also products from yep. uh, other people and and then telling their story. So coming in and being able to read, you know, who made this and why they made it and what they made it from. Mm. It's such, it's, you know, if you went back a hundred years and you explained to, you know, your great grandparent, this idea, we've got this revolutionary idea. We're going to create a chair that we're going to hand down from generation to generation. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, we've been doing that for the last two hundred years. What what are you what are you on about? It's like there's some part of it that's it's seemingly so obvious that 
you just make but i guess this is the sort of um uh, consumer capitalist world that we're in, which is about fast growth, fast fashion, fast furniture. Um, you know, having worked in the medical device industry where they look at the human and, and literally go, well, we need to be thinking of their sort of developmental stages and what can we sell to them before they're born? What do we sell to them when they're born? What do we sell to them from zero to one, you know, all the way through to when they die? How do we get the last, like, can we sell funeral services or coffins? And it kind of feels like the, the wider world has just gone, well, how many chairs can we sell someone on average over their lifetime? Let's make it, I don't know, let's pick 10. 10 seems like a good, if we get 10 chairs per person, that seems like we're on a good growth phase. Um, mm -hmm. Instead of just going, actually, granddad's chair looks pretty comfy. If I re-upholster it, um, I've, I've turned proper middle-aged. I know I knew that I was like middle-aged when I liked, I started liking American Pale Ale. And then I realized I actually really did quite like Neil Young and his music. But I think the the, the crowning moment of middle ageness is I this is like my my guilty pleasure is Salvage Hunters on TV where the guy Drew Pritchard goes around Wales <laughs> and I think it's also partly a bit of hiraith in in Welsh that longing or or feeling of wanting some connection to the the former fatherland. Um, but he goes out and finds these beautiful old pieces of furniture and gets them restored. And it's just like there's something just pleasing and the like you say the story behind some of these pieces of of furniture that he's. You know, it's been handed down. It was from eighteen, whatever, or seventeen, or it's. I think we miss that in the modern world. There's, there's another. Um, I think I've mentioned it previously on a, on a different episode. But there's a lady who, um, her husband got a job at Lego in Denmark in the in the headquarters there, and they were both from the UK. And she was like, "I don't speak Danish. I don't really see how I'm going to get a job as a journalist in Denmark when I don't speak Danish." And so she decided to to write a book on living in Denmark as a as a expat. Um, you know, as, as a commission piece that she could do while she was there. And through her research, she realized that the Danish are consistently ranked in the top three of the happiest people in the world. So she she wrote this whole book on why, you know, basically trying to uncover why the Danish are so happy. And one of the chapters she talked about was the fact that that whole kind of Ikea style furniture, minimalist, natural, but I guess historically, it was minimalist, naturally made and intergenerational. And, and I think there is like an, for me, I think that there is an energy that, you know, if this, this kitchen table is 200 years old, like the number of meals and arguments and, you know, celebrations and, and what have that have fed into this table. I think there's something in that rather than, yeah, we got it for 29.99 on sale. Um, and if it lasts us two weeks, we're pretty happy. Oh, I totally agree. I think that that, um, I think that that's something that we just need to understand is around that uh, passing down of uh, and that intergenerational perspective that we've lost mm. a little bit. Massively. I do blame, yeah. and I'm trying to think of when it went, who it was. It was, I'm pretty sure it was in the 1930s, again, to drive consumption. So the GDP measure was um, also formulated at that time. Mm. Uh, but, you know, how crises actually if we're really reactive about them and we don't think the whole process through, they can really spell out some um, quite strange tools. But the whole mm. idea of the warranty was not mm. so that you had, um, you know, that sort of, right. oh, I'm buying something that's really good because it's been, it has a warranty. It was actually yeah. giving a life expectancy to a product. Right, right. It's like if you get more than five years out of this, you're doing all right. Yeah, yeah. It was legitimately yeah. to say to all designers, you only need to design up to yeah, yeah. years because then after that, we don't really care. You're covered. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, um, drive consumption. Houses are only designed to last, what was it, like 25? Like, I think the, the internal structure of a modern-day house is only designed to last 25 years. 
And that just bemuses me that anyone has approved that and gone, yeah, that's okay. When I don't know, I think maybe if, when you've, if you've grown up in Europe or you've been in Europe and you know, there are Roman villas still standing that are over 2000 years old. It's like, we can build <laughs> to last 2000 years. I mean, there's Neolithic stone structures that are like five, the pyramids. <laughs> yes. like, we can do this, but we choose and not to because of, yeah. And even some of the chalets in France, they're like 400 years old. Yeah. So wooden structures as well. It's yeah, just, yeah. You know, in in, in harsh alpine environments, it's yeah, like exactly. I think we can cope exactly. with Auckland. <laughs> or, I, I don't know. Wellington's pretty windy, so although allegedly not. Hashtag on a good day. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. For those of you not in New Zealand, that'll be meaningless. But uh, Google it. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, Revology. Um, how's it all going? Like, what's the what's the latest? Oh, so latest is, um, it's going okay. I think I've, my primary, you know, primary objective this year has been to keep people employed. Um, and yep. because we're down in Wanaka, um, we've actually been really, really, uh, it's been incredible the amount of Kiwis and um, or those in New Zealand who have been here who've really supported New Zealand businesses. Nice. So a huge shout out to everybody because that Go is, Kiwis. Uh, yeah, go Kiwis. Um, wherever you came from. Is, uh, yep. There are some who have stepped here only very, very lately, but thank you to all Kiwis. Um, and it really did rattle our cage. We had huge issues mm. with supply chains. Um, just, you know, one of the other things that came into the mix last year was uh, uh, flax production. So flax is linen, nice. essentially. Uh, and we buy it from a cooperative in France because that's where 80% of the flax is made um, and wow. processed. And it's not harikiki, just so that everybody knows. Yep. It's a flax is a um, linum and harikiki is a formium. But in May, they had a huge heat wave. Um, so it totally devastated 80% of the flax crop last year. Um, because... There was a real pushback on uh, consumption. There was not a lot of clothes being made or mm. purchased. It hasn't held us up too much because they had enough stock so that we were able nice. to continue, which was good. Um, but it just drove home that fragility of the um, production of fibres and natural mm. fibres. Even, even natural fibres, which is crazy. <clears throat> you kind so of think, oh, petrochemical, to... you know, big extensive production chain, multiple countries of source, you know, yeah, you mm -hmm. kind of get supply chain, but like natural products, cut, yep. small processing. And from yeah. another indication for me around that environment, this is a region in France that have been doing this for so, so, so long. Um, like centuries, they have been producing linen and they don't often get mm. it. Um, it's just another indication of climate change. Hold on, I'm getting my cord. <laughs> Please hold, call um, us. Just hold. Um, anyway, uh, that was a real issue. And then other supply issues are also around um, uh, just being able to keep that production cycle up um, was really challenging. Um, and we had to hold off because we were really uncertain about um, the capital going into it and just the putting money into developing the bike further. Yep. Um, but this year, exciting, because I think that project has been just off the boil, but it's now starting to get back on. And nice. we should have a few working prototypes by the end of the year, which is nice. exciting. 
because that's when I remember that's when we first met. I was emceeing the Enviropast conference and you were one of the keynote speakers and I was quite excited about your sustainably made bikes and I'm still excited and waiting for it. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more about that. Hope, I mean, who knows, maybe we'll get one in the Tour de France uh, one year. That'd be That'd be pretty cool. Get a racing one and get it in there. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll be. I think we'll focus on urban bikes. Um, that seems reasonable. <laughs> with two, with two um, big road cyclists in the family, that potentially they could. It could be a distraction. There could be a side project there. Well, there's a couple of Kiwi cyclists doing pretty good in the Giro d'Italia and, and Tour de France recently. So, who you know? Who knows? Who knows? Um, but you also have your own event that you uh, clearly, you know, you're, you you don't have much going on, you know, with a, a startup retail store, um, startup, um, you know, re changing the way we design products from the ground up. And then on top of that, you also run your own event, um, which used to be called the One Summit, which again, I'm thankfully, uh, thankful to you for having me down there a couple of years ago, but it's now it's changed. And what's it called now? Um. I, uh, so what we have uh, changed that name to, which is more, um, it, the trust sort of needed a name change away from something that was a little bit political and I didn't quite, we didn't like it. Anyway, it didn't sit well and it took us a while until um, we changed it to wow, which is a, a word for that um, forest. So the idea is that, you know, when you look at a forest, it's a one forest, but there's a lot of diversity in it. And the trust is set up, um, its sole purpose is to inspire, educate and enable uh, a transition to more uh, regenerative carbon neutral um, communities. And so we have on our board some incredible people um, who uh, have different expertise in carbon accounting and um, social and well-being um, we've got and we we have different work streams as well as having a yearly summit where we pull together I um, the summit really is about seeing what's happened during the year where we've come from and looking at okay this is where we're at now and where do we go forward uh, and during the year as well, we have a number of work streams. So we've got working groups set up in the building sector. Uh, we work with Lake Wanaka Tourism here. With um, There's a regenerative tourism group starting up, looking at their sector. There's a hospo sector. Um, there's GenWow, which is sort of the 20 to 30-year-olds who look at activities. And each of these work streams look through. So that, they're the biggest sectors at the moment mm -hmm. of our economy in this community. And each group is looking through the sustainable development goals at um, where the tensions lie, where the priorities are and where the opportunities are to um, go forward. So the building group, for example, there's been a um, community workshop that has dropped out of that one um, where we're looking at materials flows as well as mental health and well-being in that sector. Um, there's Suck Free Wanaka, which is also one of the initiatives that came out of the early discussions, which is getting rid of single-use cups by 2022 nice. um, out of hospitality in Wanaka. Uh, there's another initiative around waste-free um, building sites that are coming through in that one. So that's sort of going through throughout the year. And the GenWow, um, they do, they've had talks around Democracy 101, so understanding around voting in general the process mm -hmm. and that was just prior to the elections nice um and then the summit sort of pulls everything together so um this year will be the fourth year 
Uh, it's a national summit, um, so not just for local community, but for anyone out there who would like to attend. Um, it's a summit where it's about cross-pollinating ideas between groups doing similar things throughout um, New Zealand so that we can actually learn from each other and accelerate um, the movement. Uh, and there's, again, different. We look at it through uh, how we that better buildings. So that's everything to do with in infrastructure, energy resilience. Mm -hmm. um, there are talks, tours, workshops. Um, there are brands that are going to be there, I think, again this year doing an embodied carbon workshop. We've got another one looking at um, waste-free building sites. Um, then we've got another stream, which is around the circular economy, another one on food and fiber. So that's looking at the uh, anyone, all the makers out there who grow um, our food and clothe us with fiber. Um, nice. And there'll be tours on farms. Uh, there's the regenerative tourism um, couple of days there. Again, looking at um, how that sector is going forward. And they've had a really interesting year with the Back to Life program, um, which is run nationally. And uh, so we're looking at doing a hui um, uh, to sort of get, it's really about collaboration and partnership. You know, as a sector, you can mm. move mountains when you really start to collaborate totally. on something. Yep. Uh, and, and lots of carbon, yeah, just lots of stuff for kids. It's a great event. I was blown away by, yeah, the caliber of the the event, you know, the cop the, the topics, the engagement, you know, of attending. I think there was from my perspective, there was a lot of people in the room that I didn't think would want to be in the room, but they were in the room and they were engaged and interested in, in talking about some big topics. So um we have got a question from Maria just to take you back to your bike concept. She said, let me uh I'll put your comment up for you. Uh I missed the sustainable bike concept. Sorry, can you elaborate? So I know we've got a little bit of a hard stop because you've got to go and have afternoon tea with the mayor or the mayoress. Is it the mayor or mayoress yeah, down there? The mayor. The mayor. So, um, yeah, qu quickly, if you can, um, I'll try and find a link on your website while you're, um, is there yeah, a link so on the Revology I, website about the bike? That I can... Yes, there is. There's a little, um, a little first initial design. But, but the idea is to look at um, the, from two levels. It's about the materials we're putting into the bikes and making sure that we've got a really um, low emissions bike from a production point of view and using natural fiber composites um, to be able to do that. So that would be uh, natural fiber composites can replace almost um, quite often where carbon fiber is being used uh, and it's a much more cost-effective way as well um, uh, to be using it and what can't, natural fibers what they do is they actually embody carbon in it so it would be a, a low emissions bike frame for the start but the idea is also to make a bike that is designed to be passed down through the generations so if you're a bike designer out there do not put any tech or gadgets into the frame of your bike please do not design anything that has wires or lights or anything that is connected to it do not buy a bike where there is a battery integrated into the frame because just ask yourself a question what are you going to do with the frame once the battery dies mm. you're going to have to find a battery that fits into that frame and it's not sure that that company is actually going to still exactly the same battery yeah um, and it's a much harder to throw a bike into the bin than it is to throw another iphone you will feel much much worse about doing it so the idea is really <laughs> to look at the longevity of the bike do a life cycle analysis on it look at it some body carbon and then go forward and say, well, you know, nice. use software in a way that is smart and can be um, 
look at how much CO2 you're saving mm. when you're biking along per year. And because again, it's it's so crazy because I remember you know grew up in the UK, so had never been to Asia um, and working for one of the medical companies over here. I remember going to Malaysia for, for a conference on, on the island of Langkawi. I remember walking around going, my God, they're using bamboo as like scaffolding. How dangerous is that? But then you realize that now actually bamboo is stronger than steel scaffolding and it's fully sustainable. And you just want to go, well, actually, who's the idiots here? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and I think there's so many, um, there's so many things that we just take for granted that, well, we're, we're using modern, you know, yeah, unsustainable products, but it has to be like that because it's the best thing. But mm-hmm. quite often, it's, you know, nature is pretty good at being resilient and strong and sustainable. Yeah. I think that there's there's so much potential in seeing materials, you know, are you working with materials in that bioeconomy that are going to be able to really be composted without putting any toxins into uh, the environment um, mm. or are you going to have to um, stay within that circular economy where you are actually being able to upcycle again and again and again the same materials and for mm. some things in the composite industry and it's not the composites are really um, a difficult subject because we need them for things like windmills uh, for wind turbines uh, yep. because they're light and it, you can't go beyond them but can we do that in a different way not always but it's it comes down to before you even think about creating or making is what are you making it from? What is the, what are mm. the materials going into it? And what yep. is the life cycle of that product that you're designing? And I think once you've got that framework in mind, um, it's hard then to make gadgets. It's really hard. Um, Unless you just don't care. But you just, yeah. I think I, I'm, I'm, of a, I'm of the opinion that most people really do care. You're right. I think fundamentally, um, there's that old old um, old adage. You know, no, no one goes to work to sort of be a dick and make the world a worse place. I'm not entirely convinced. I've met a few humans who I think actually they do go out of their way to make life hell and you know be a bit of a dick uh, at work. But yeah, I think in general, people want to do the right thing, and it's just that they don't. They either aren't aware that what they're doing is having a negative impact. But I think that's getting less and less as it becomes more obvious that mm. you know. I, th- I think for me, one take home for this would probably be, um, uh, you know, just stop and pause for a minute and just have a think about what what actions are you undertaking as, a, as an individual or an organization that might be having a negative impact for someone? Because mm-hmm. so, someone, there, there is enough negative stuff, there's enough, you know, externalities out there affecting people that someone's causing them. It could be you. It might not be you, but just have a quick check. And if it is you... Talk to someone like Monique if you're looking into design or, or you know, products and, and say, hey, look, I, I want to know why it's not so good and, and how I can be better. It's not rocket science, is it? <laughs> I, it's not. Do you know, I think it, I'm going to bring it back to Invercargill if I can. Go for it. Good old Invers. If we're part of a community and a being part of a community is about accountability to each other and is about yeah. making sure that when we do something that we're not, uh, if we had to, um, if we were doing something or bringing something into that community that was causing harm, mm. then you were accountable for it. Yeah. So well, and, and you and and in Invercargo, you definitely it was a small community. Totally. That was accountability was part of it. Totally. Someone's going to take you aside and have a conversation and go, do you know, what? we really just don't appreciate. It. And I think that that's the analogy I use when I'm talking to corp- corporates about purpose. It's like 
and, and I saw a really great analogy uh, actually from a, a B Corps in the UK called the Octopus Group. And, and they literally say, imagine if your business was a person. You know, you're you're, per, you're a person walking down the street. Are you kicking the trash ta- trash can over? Are you, you know, taking food from the homeless guy's mouth? Are you, you know, b- metaphorically, how are you behaving in your in your society? And I think that's a hundred percent right. Like we are one big tribe. Are, are you are you contributing to the tribe? Or I, you know, the analogy I typically talk about is it's kind of like we're all sitting around the campfire and someone comes in. They pour pour the last bit of drinking water over the fire and then they steal the last bit of food. It's not long before it's like, hey, Monique, um, I've done this three nights in a row now. <laughs> the kids are a bit hungry. Um, we're a bit thirsty um, and we're not really sure where you're taking all the food. Um, could you stop it? And it's not long before you're thrown out of the tribe if you don't turn that around. And, and I think increasingly people are realizing we have some people in the tribe who are being dicks. Mm. But we're getting there. Hey, so we're at the hour mark, and I don't want you to be late for cucumber sandwiches and uh, tea. And um, I, I bet you there will be uh, Matt, was it what's that the Battenberg? I bet there's there's that. Yeah, be, be all over that. Oh, really? <laughs> Disappointing. No, you don't. <laughs> you've blown you've blown my image here. <laughs> um, but hey, no, thank you so much. Um, if people need to get hold of you, I've got links to Revology and the WoW um, events. If you, if you, yeah, like check it out. It's a really, really cool event. Um, what, what's kind of what does the future hold for you? Do you think what's what's the next thing coming on on for Monique? Oh, um, I think just amplifying what I'm doing. I think this is or what we're doing because it really is a team effort. I think that there's mm. a really interesting bubble up coming from a Wanaka perspective, but from in the south, I'm also involved in a project um, to start a processing plant for oats or plant-based beverages down in Southland, which nice. is a really exciting project. Um, so I would say uh, just amplifying what's already being done. Nice. I love it. Yeah. Hey, and um, thank you, Maria, for tuning in. Uh, she's given us some immediate feedback. Thank, thank you, you both. Very interesting. And uh, Michael Philpott um, had great work to make great discussions. So yeah. it looks like we've nailed this episode. Um, I'll put some links if you uh, we're obviously on LinkedIn. Connect with uh, Monique on LinkedIn if you uh, want to get hold of her. But um, yeah, Monique, you know, thank you so much for just being an amazing human and doing some really, really cool stuff. Inspirational work. Really going to you know, I think you'll look back um, in 20, 30 years time and, and just be like, literally, wow, I think I achieved quite a lot. Um, I'm hopefully coming down to Queenstown Wanaka in the next month or so. So watch this space. I'll take your dog for another walk like I did last time I stayed with you. If there's Bring room it. at the, <laughs> if there's room at the I'd love to give, us, give us a yell when you're down. I'd love to catch up. Cool. And, awesome. And hey. to another amazing human being as well. Thank you. For your oh, time. thank you. Cool. All right. I'm going to throw you out of the, if you stay in the green room, I'll come and see you in a second. Um, yeah, so thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh, yeah, thank you Maria for tuning in, and uh, thank you Michael. I need to get rid of Michael's comment. We can't give him such free advertising. Um, yeah, thank you all for tuning in. Hopefully, um, you got something uh, out of that. Um, I thought it was a great chat. Um, I don't know who my next guest is going to be. I haven't looked that far ahead in my calendar, but I've got a couple of really cool people lined up. So um, yeah, please keep tuning in. Um, if there's anyone that you want me to have a chat to, let me know. Um, I'm sure we can make it happen. Peace out. Have a great weekend, and we'll catch you on the flip side. See ya! And that's a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for listening into my podcast. I hope you found it informative and inspirational. 
I'd love to know where you are on your purpose journey. And if you have any specific questions or people you'd like me to interview to help you on that journey, please do let me know. Also, feel free to connect with me on other social media platforms. You can check out all those links in the show notes below. And if you want to see how I might be able to help you specifically on your purpose journey, you can go and check out my website, www.growgood.co, or drop me a line by email, tim at growgood.co. All those links will also be in the show notes. I would genuinely love to hear from you. But anyway, until next time, go well and keep seeking that purpose-fueled performance in your life.